Have you ever witnessed an explosion? <laughs> How's that for a transition? Have you ever witnessed an explosion? Have you ever seen anything utterly destroyed? Perhaps your minds can go back to the video watching the events that took place as the World Trade Centers collapsed on 9-11 in 2001 and they were decimated. Maybe you've served in our U.S. military and had the opportunity to see bombs that have gone off and destroyed buildings, completely shattering them. Maybe you haven't seen anything in real life, but it involved a science video in science class as you witnessed an atomic explosion or a mushroom cloud. These are fitting pictures to have in mind because today in Mark 7, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to function much like a ballistics expert. He's going to detonate a spiritual bomb, an atomic truth for the ages that is going to radically impact everyone that hears him. The title of our message is Bombs Away, Defiled from the Inside Out. And the damaging and rippling effect is going to impact the scribes, the Pharisees, and anyone who has ever embraced legalism or misunderstood our spiritual depravity. The term legalism, according to Dictionary of Bible Themes, can be defined this way. The belief that salvation, or one's legal standing before God, demands or depends upon total obedience to the letter of the law. Examples of legalism include an excessive concern for minute details of the law coupled with a neglect of its fundamental concerns and a preoccupation with human legal traditions, end quote. Our recent study has allowed us to see this even more clearly. In our last passage, we studied four defining actions that characterize a Pharisee or legalist. That study revealed their need and our need for Christ and the gospel because their hearts were not righteous based on God's terms of faith. Instead, they functioned in a spirit of self-righteousness. They judge the actions of others externally. They self-righteously exalted external traditions and standards. Their hearts were divorced from their obedience, and this ultimately led them to distort the purpose of the law. The law was never intended to save people. Rather, it was intended for a saved people. It was intended to assist worship and guide the hearts and ministry of those who lived by faith. And this is why the Lord rebukes them so severely. At the heart of his rebuke in the last passage, he cited the prophet Isaiah in Mark 7, verses 6 and 7, when he said, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men." The Lord revealed that their hypocrisy was connected to their heart problem and their false understanding and application of the law. Not only did they misunderstand the law, but their system also had them add all of these things to the law. To some degree, a bigger thing that's taking place is there was an insufficiency in God's word. It wasn't enough. They had to keep adding to it, and so they did with oral traditions. 
And so now, after we, we've seen this, after we've studied this, Jesus is going to drop the bombshell of truth that will shatter the foundation of their religious superstructure based on legalism. What truth will our Lord reveal that will have such an explosive impact? And why will it inflict so much damage? How should the truth that we hear today impact our worldview and our view of man? How might it help us to prioritize our proclamation of the true biblical gospel? Let's tackle the text to find answers and begin by reading our passage together. Mark 7, verses 14 through 23 says this. After he called the crowd to him, again he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. The Lord Jesus Christ drops a bombshell pinpointing the spiritual source of human defilement. And he wants us to see it so that we don't get it backwards like the Pharisees and the rest of the religious world. Now before we proceed, I think it's important for us to understand what we're talking about in terms of defilement. Defilement is the result of making oneself or someone else unclean in God's sight. Outward physical defilement comes from contact with someone or something unclean. We see examples of this in the law. Whereas sin produces inner spiritual defilement. The Pharisees focused on and hyper-analyzed physical or external defilement. We've witnessed this. But they dismissed their own internal defilement. And much more is going to be said on this as we progress. Let's get started with the first point, which I have appropriately named the bombshell. And I want you to do something. I want you to picture a grenade. I want you to picture a pin being pulled on the grenade, right? Because we know that without that pin being pulled, it's protected. It's not going to have the effect it must be pulled, and then it must be thrown. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing. He's pulling the pin on the grenade when he states that our defilement does not stem from outside of us. And this all begins with a radical paradigm shift with Jesus setting the tone in verse 14. It's very emphatic in the Greek. He calls everyone forward because he's about to rock their spiritual boats. All of you, or everyone, depending on your translation, 
stresses the universal nature of what the Lord is about to share. He says, listen to me. Listen to me. You spent your lives listening to all these oral traditions. You're aware with what's been said. I need you to do something for me. I need you to listen to me. Verse 15. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Dr. Vincent Taylor, author of the esteemed book, The Gospel According to St. Mark, says, In laying down the principle that uncleanness comes from within and not from without, Jesus' pronouncement stated a truth uncommon in contemporary Judaism, which was destined to free Christianity from the bondage of legalism. William Barclay calls this the, up, uh, the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. The radical nature and paradigm shift of Christ's pronouncement is difficult for us to grasp because we have a full concept of New Testament revelation. We also, for the most part, are disconnected from the, the legalistic and fastidious legalism that held everyone captive during this time. So from our perspective, this might just seem like a, a commonplace moral truth, but this was a, a bombshell for the first century Jew, and one to which the Pharisees took offense. How so, you ask? Jesus' statement placed him in direct opposition to the scribal view concerning ceremonial defilement. Literally understood, it also placed him in direct opposition to the regulations as it related to what the law required, required with food restrictions. And that's spelled out for us in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. And we know the Pharisees took offense to this because the parallel account in Matthew affirms it. You don't need to turn there. But in Matthew 15, 12, it says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? And Matthew had just shared an almost identical statement to what Mark shares in Mark 7. Although he adds the word mouth and, and says, It's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. And the reason why he adds mouth is because this whole thing, if you look back to verse 2 in our chapter, it all started with food. They were eating with unclean hands. That's the context. The Pharisees took this verse and added countless other oral traditions that required hand washing. Yeah, tons and tons of traditions. It was this strict defilement regiment that they created and they superimposed on God's people. And there were dozens and dozens of these oral traditions. And we talked about it. What was the, there, how many verses in the, the Old Testament law pertain to the people? You remember those who were here when we talked about it? To them washing their hands. Right? It was one. Leviticus 15.11. That if they happened to touch somebody who was ill or uh, sick with a discharge or touched the discharge, they were to wash their hands. The Pharisees, again, took this and ran with it. 
And they added all these other things to it. Then if you go to the market, when you come back, you have to wash their hands. If you interacted and had any dealings with Gentiles or uh, Samaritans, you had to wash your hands. Depending on what food you touched, you had to wash your hands. Before you could sit down and eat, you had to wash your hands. Depending on what you ate during the meal, you might have to wash your hands several times during the meal. It was crazy. It was ludicrous. And now they hear Jesus teach, and there is nothing. There is no thing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. There's just a little bit of conflict of interest here, don't you think? What is Jesus up to? Well, this not only offends the Pharisees, but it also confuses the disciples. And so now, the next subpoint under our first point, the parable gets questioned starting in verse 17. Now, before we move on, you may have noticed, depending on your translation, if you have the ESV, you have no verse 16. It doesn't exist. It's missing. If you have a NASB, New American Standard, it's in brackets. And the reason for this is that some early manuscripts included it and some didn't. And the good news for us is that its inclusion or exclusion doesn't impact the meaning of what Jesus is teaching. We do know that Mark records Jesus using this expression and other connections with parables in Mark 9, or excuse me, Mark 4.9, Mark 4.23. So it most likely belongs, but if you disagree, then you're welcome to find somebody after the service who disagrees with you. You can arm wrestle them, and whoever wins, then you can go with that position. How's that? No, all, all joking aside, the, the, the real questioning is going to begin here in verse 17. It says, when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go out into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. To some degree, the Pharisees' offense and the disciples' confusion may at least in part seem warranted in light of what the law teaches about clean and unclean foods in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. But let's step back and make sure that we're seeing the big picture and clarify a couple things. As I was meditating on this passage, there's a few things that I believe that we should take special note of, especially considering the, the, the dynamic of this parabolic bombshell. First, Jesus is God and is asserting his authority again. This is the bigger picture of all the gospel accounts. You may recall the last encounter that the Lord had with the Pharisees all the way back at the end of Mark chapter 2, and it was over the Sabbath. And he finished by saying something very profound that, that rattled their cage. That the Son of Man is even Lord over the Sabbath. Those were fighting words. And immediately, verse Mark 3, 6, they go out and plot how they're going to destroy him. Well, now, Jesus is declaring all foods clean. 
Who has the authority to do this except the Lord himself? For the Pharisees, this is a bombshell. Secondly, Jesus is also nullifying the ceremonial law and food restrictions, making preparations for the new covenant. When Mark wrote his gospel, questions related to kosher foods and dietary regulations, this was a big concern for, for converts, especially those who were pagan, because they were aware of the, the limitations that the Jews were under. So they asked questions. And we see this get addressed by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 and also in Romans chapters 14 and 15. Of course, the Lord knew this was going to be an issue. So what does he do in preparation for the new covenant? What does he do? He declares all foods clean. His declaration takes precedent over the dietary regulations of both the oral and written law, revealing that his teaching is supremely authoritative, superseding the Torah itself. His teaching here is a fulfillment of the law because it served its purpose. It covered what it was supposed to do, right? It was fulfilled, and now that, was, that regulation was being lifted. Again, a bombshell, absolute bombshell for the Pharisees. Third, Jesus is condemning the Pharisees' legalism that has enslaved God's people and distorted the priority and purpose of the law. Throughout the gospel accounts, we see him rebuke them so severely. And if uh, one of the verses that I shared, if you recall back in Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, Jesus said in his own words, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. They were an obstacle to true faith, saving faith. And just two verses later, in verse 15 of that same chapter, Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one a proselyte, a convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Condemning words. Their legalism was damning, and it stemmed from their deception that was rooted in their pride and an external righteousness and kept them detached from true saving faith, from a true relationship with God, and their, their need for righteousness that can only come through faith. And it really boils down to faith. Their concern shouldn't be with hand cleansing. It should be with heart cleansing. Their faith was based on religious, external practices derived from restrictions of the law rather than a relationship with God guided by the blessing of the law. In fact, they missed the whole purpose and point of the law to begin with. In Deuteronomy 5.29, and I put that verse in the outline so you could remember it, and have a chance, it's even in the sermon reflection questions, you'll have a chance to go back and meditate on this verse. I, th I thought it's so meaningful. God sh clearly expressed his desire to Israel right before the Shema. And he says this in Deuteronomy 5.29. The Shema, of course, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor, right? That, that, that's the Shema that's mentioned in Deuteronomy 6, 
4 through 9, I believe. But right before this, this is what he says in chapter 5, verse 29. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. God's desire, just like a loving father with his children, was for Israel's well-being, which would result from their love and obedience to him. The law was like a schoolmaster or a tutor that accompanied saving faith. It was only designed to be a fence to keep the kids in the yard for their own safety and well-being. Ironically, if you remove the fence, there is less freedom because you don't know what the boundaries are. Put in the fence, children can go all the way to its ends. Take away the fence, and they have to stick close to the house, and they're even more restricted. It's there. There's freedom. There's freedom with it. Right, and we, I was trying to think of a real life example when uh, we take our kids. We have a community pool, and when we go there, there's the the rules are right up there on a big board for you to see. No food, no diving, all, all these rules, right? And they come in and they can't read yet, and they say, "Dad, what's what, what's that say?" And I say, "Well, those are the rules so that we can use the pool, right?" And when they see those rules, just at, at, at face value, there's a disconnect. But when I, as their father, take them and I pull them close and I say, guys, listen to me. This is what you need to know. That you can't dive into the shallow end. Do you know that if you dive in that you could actually hit your head on the bottom? <clears throat> you could break your neck. You can't eat while you swim. Do you know what will happen if you get something lodged in your throat and, and you choke while you're in the water? You'll go under the water and you'll never come up. All of a sudden, now, based on their relationship with me as their father, do those rules take on new meaning to them? They do. They do. And the same is true for us. The law takes on new meaning. And as I emphasized earlier, the law was given to, to save, not to save people, but to a save people. It does not save it was designed for those who are saved to show them how to relate to God and to one another. And that is why the entire law can be summed up as love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. Without faith, the Pharisees were blind and blindly leading others on a path of destruction. The law turns into a curse that they cannot keep. And this is exactly what Galatians 3.10, another verse that I included in your outline for you, says... For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. And Jesus shared that nothing from outside a man could defile a man. This went against everything that the Pharisees taught as it related to the law. They taught and adamantly believed that a person was defiled from the outside. Again, absolute bombshell. The Pharisees have it backwards. And so does the rest of the religious world that thinks that somehow you can meritoriously earn a righteous standing before God. 
That somehow if we just keep ourselves clean enough and distance enough from the dirty things of the world, that is what will produce a righteousness that we can stand before God. They misunderstand our defilement issue. And I put down on the bottom, you'll notice for point one, some questions down below for you to reflect upon, for, for my own heart to reflect upon. The Pharisees focused on external matters when dealing with defilement while neglecting <clears throat> their internal defilement. How can you and I be tempted to do the same thing? It's much easier than we think. We're sitting there watching TV and we're always trying to protect parents. Aren't we not trying to protect the eyes of our children? Wives protecting the eyes of our husbands. Husbands protecting the eyes, right? As we stare trying to watch a show through Satan's window, right? And let me recant on that. Just, I'm, not, I'm not condemning TV. What I am saying is that we, we make great efforts, and what can happen, I'll just use this as an illustration, that there can be something that is um, disturbing, uh, a, a, a strong sexual image that can come up through the TV. And physically, you can turn the station. But mentally and internally, you can allow your heart to stay and reside captivated on that thought. And you can dwell on it. That's just one example, and there are countless others. Even on Sunday morning, we talked about it just that we can go ahead and take a shower. We can do all these things physically to make sure that we look presentable on the outside and we can show up and be completely, completely unprepared to worship. Well, this sets us up very well for our second point. After Jesus drops the parabolic bombshell, it's now time for us to witness the explosion. Jesus is now going to address the universal nature of defilement and expose that our defilement originates from inside our hearts. As your outline indicates, he begins with the source of our defilement before disclosing the evidence of our defilement. But for the sake of efficiency, let's read verses 20 to 23 together again. Starting in verse 20, And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. Verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed <clears throat> from within and defile the man. Jesus clearly pinpoints the source of defilement. It's the heart of man. It is cardia in the Greek, the Greek word for cardia, which where we get our English word cardiac. It's the heart. And it's not a reference to the physical organ, but it reflects the spirit or the inner man. A Hebrew study of the same word, heart, reveals that it goes even much deeper. It's talking about the will. It's talking about the seat of your emotions. It's talking about the intellect. It's talking about affections. 
desires. And they often refer to it as the mission control center of a man. And Jesus is exposing that every heart is defiled by nature. There is an internal corruption due to sin that impacts every part of who we are. And perhaps you've heard this expression, we sin because we are sinners. We aren't sinners because we sinned. It is our very nature before grace enters the picture. Corrupted emotions, corrupted affections, defiled thoughts, a sinful will, a prideful intellect, evil desires, a broken spirit, all originate in the heart of man. And this reflects the doctrine that is known as total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity. And verses 21 through 23 are some of the most significant that teach on this doctrine found anywhere in the scripture that universally apply to everyone. Our depravity is an inherited corruption stemming from the sin of Adam. The sinfulness of man is one of the most important doctrines. Understanding It helps us to understand virtually all the other major doctrines. Thus, to understand that we are totally depraved means that we understand that our sin affects every part. It means that we can't reason right. We can't think right. That we're going to, by nature, hide from the light. That we can't please God. That our sin will be uncontrollable. This is critical when dealing with evangelism, counseling, parenting, relationships with unbelievers, why unbelievers in the world act the way they do, why unbelievers can't understand the Bible. It radically shapes our worldview and our view of mankind. And it also paves the way to the other major doctrines that help us to see God's answer to total depravity, the doctrine of God, the doctrines of grace, the doctrine of redemption, the doctrine of salvation, the church, angels and demons, the end times, they are all properly understood when we have a firm grasp of the sinfulness of man and how it affects us and the cure for its consequences. Just listen to the evidence of our defilement that Jesus provides. R. Kent Hughes says, these words even sound ugly in the Greek. <laughs> That's funny if you're seminary like me. But uh, the, 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 J.C. Ryle refers to them as a black catalog of evil. They don't require much explanation, but let's just, let's just consider them for a moment. And, and I want you to do something here, and I put this in the, the reflection questions. When you see these verses, you have to see your own heart. Our tendency is to do what? Is to do what the legalist does, to do what the Pharisee does. We don't see ourselves. We see other people when we this. Is. I'm not a murderer. Oh, really? Have you ever despised anyone? Have you ever hated anyone? It applies. Let's look at them. It starts with evil thoughts. Straightforward. Fornications. The Greek word porneia, from where we get pornography, 
which is a blanket term for any type of sexual immorality covering everything from adultery, prostitution, homosexuality, to bestiality. All covered, blanket term, fornications, thefts, straightforward, murders, straightforward, adulteries, basically added a second time, but this time more specific, deeds of coveting and wickedness. Coveting means desiring to possess something at the expense of the legitimate owner, as well as deceit, Such sensuality, represents uncontrolled, lustful passions, okay, a, a licentiousness, envy or jealousy, slander, pride, foolishness. I'll go back to that word envy. It's interesting because there's, a, there's a, a, a word that is related to ophthalmology, the, 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 to the sight of the eye. When we see things and covet things and desire things, it's like all these things working together that can make us envious of someone else, jealous of someone else. It's an interesting word. And I want you to notice how hand washing will help you with this, right? If you're a Pharisee, yeah, hand washing is going to help you right here, boys. Jesus left no escape route. This explosion of truth sends their legalistic superstructure crashing down. Each sin is like a piece of spiritual shrapnel destroying the edifice of legalism. Their skyscraper of self-righteousness that the Pharisees elaborately constructed to look so lofty, so high and lifted up, so beautiful. Each of their own hearts would have to deal with the cataclysmic consequences of what Jesus just exposed. Everyone is defiled from within. Everyone. And the concluding verse, verse 23, couldn't be any clearer. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. And this is how Jesus viewed the heart of man apart from his grace. He didn't sugarcoat it, did he? He doesn't hold back, right? And this is taking place. It's common in our culture to, to hold back a little bit. You're going to offend. You're, seriously, if you tell somebody, and, and, and we, we even reveal about our own total depravity, how, how are they conditioned? You're being a little too hard on yourself. You're a good guy. Come on. Come on, right? Don't beat yourself up. It's the truth. He proclaimed that every area of life is tainted with sin, which originates in man's heart. And like the Pharisees and those who heard Jesus speak these words in real time, our hearts must also come to terms with the inward corruption and depravity that defines a life without faith. J.C. Ryle shared this. Let us distinctly understand when we read these words that our Lord is speaking of the human heart generally. He is not speaking only of the notorious profligate or the prisoner in the jail. He is speaking of all mankind, all of us, whether high or low, rich or poor, masters or servants, old or young, learned or unlearned. All of us have by nature such a heart as Jesus here describes. The seeds of all the evils here mentioned lie hidden within us all. They may lie dormant all our lives. They may be kept down by the fear of consequences, the restraint of public opinion, 
the dread of discovery, the desire to be thought respectable, and above all, by the almighty grace of God. But every man has within him the root of every sin. What a sobering statement. Do you agree with Ryle? Let me make sure. Do you, do you agree with Ryle that there were, in, in, in the sinful heart of man is the propensity to commit every sin imaginable? It's in there. And this is radical stuff, especially, especially for those that think that humankind is intrinsically good. If you embrace modern pop psychology and the secular teachings on anthropology around the globe taught in sociology, exalting the goodness of mankind, our Lord's teaching stands diametrically opposed to it all. Why? Why? Because the Lord wants us to recognize and understand our defiled condition and run to his open arms extended to us through the gospel. He wants us to see our need to be born again and to walk in newness of life. Not just our need for conversion, but our need for radical conversion. A lasting heart change. We're not talking about bypass. We're not talking about going in and clearing a blockage. We're talking about transplant. Radically different. I think my medical staff would even agree. All right, our medical staff in the church. These were the Lord's words to Nicodemus in John 3. A religious man, a prominent Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had all the religious credentials from a pharisaical standpoint, yet Jesus tells him, you must be born again. And if we view John 3 through the lens of Mark 7, Jesus was saying, even you, Nicodemus, are defiled on the inside. Mark 7, 14 through 23, leaves no room for anyone to hide, not for the Pharisee, nor the scribe, nor any other man who has ears to hear. Ryle concludes with these final words. How thankful we ought to be for the gospel. When we read these verses, the gospel contains a complete provision for all the needs of our poor, defiled natures. The blood of Christ can cleanse us from all sin. The Holy Spirit can change even our sinful hearts and keep them clean when changed. The man that does not glory in the gospel can surely know little of the plague that is within him. How watchful we ought to be when we remember these verses. What a careful guard we ought to keep over our imaginations, our tongues, and our daily behavior. At the head of the blacklist of our heart's content stand evil thoughts. Let us never forget that thoughts are the parents of words and deeds. Let us pray daily for the grace to keep our thoughts in order and let us cry earnestly and fervently, lead us not into temptation. Wow. Wow. And 
just meditating on this passage, you know, just even talking about all the doctrines that it, that it connects us with, the bearing that it has on our counseling, on our parenting, the implications from this passage abound. Let me just share a couple. A couple important ones. The supremacy of the gospel in our own hearts. If we're evaluated based on what we do, we'll always come up short. Our evaluation is on what Christ did on our behalf. His work was perfect. Ours will never be. It can't be. It always relies upon Him. It's always by faith that we remain in our good standing before God. It's always by faith that we walk in love and obedience to the Lord in a manner worthy of our calling despising legalism, yet loving his commands that bring our heavenly Father joy. Number two, the supremacy of the gospel in our relationships, especially in our relationships with unbelievers. That God would use us to bear witness of our renewed hearts and that we wouldn't have an attitude of the Pharisee that we're better than. But we can let them know that we're better off. God has changed our heart and he stands ready, mercifully, ready to forgive you. And he understands your depravity. He understands your greatest need. Oh, that they would see the magnitude of their sin. Oh, that God would use us to help them see the magnitude of their sin. And that he does stand ready and willing to forgive them if they'll repent and trust completely in Christ. I also want to mention the supremacy of the gospel in parenting our kids. No matter what you do, parent, no matter how many rules you put in place, you cannot save or sanctify your children. They need a heart change. They are defiled from the inside out. It's not from their environment. It's not from the other kids that they hang around. It's not a disease that they're going to catch. It's a congenital illness that we passed on to them. And they were born with a defiled heart, just like you and I. And it needs to be changed by the grace of God through the power of the gospel. Amen? Amen. And that's it. That's why we focus. That's why we shepherd. And, and this, this is a reminder of my, to, to my own parenting with, with four kids that, that, that to prioritize the gospel and to look at the spiritual p- picture. And it's not about our schedules being disrupted. It's not about keeping the house clean. It's about getting to the most defiled area in the house, which is what? It's not the garage. It's not their bedroom. And I know some of you parents with teenagers and might question that at some times. What is the most defiled area in the house? It's that unregenerate heart. It's that heart that should drive us to our knees, praying, pleading with God, change their heart, change their heart. Liam's two years old. I like to lay down and I just talk to him. He's at that age where, you know, he just says some of the wildest things, and God is bigger than the boogeyman as a Veggie Tales that he watched. And 
he kept asking us for the longest time. We don't even still, I don't even know where he got it, but he said, why, why is the man scared? Dada, why is the man scared? And I said, Liam, there's no reason to be scared unless we don't have Jesus. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, then there's reason to be scared. Dad is not scared. I have Jesus. I've trusted in Jesus. Mama's not scared. And then he's just started just saying it over and over again. Dad is not scared. He trusted in Jesus. Liam, you need to trust in Jesus. Otherwise, there is fear. But the Lord will do it. The Lord will do the work. And when we keep their depravity in mind, that is what's going to keep us more, most prayerful. When, it, when, when they sin, or as the world defines it, run into problems, difficulties, challenges, broken relationships, are we pointing to depravity to help and assist their understanding of the gospel context as they look out into the world? That's what effective parenting does. That's what God would have us do. Well, now that we've witnessed the parabolic bombshell and the explosion that it caused, I want to revisit the questions that I asked at the beginning of the message. But this time I want us to re uh, re look at them through and view them through a spiritual lens. Have you ever witnessed an explosion? Have you ever seen something utterly destroyed? When we process that through a spiritual lens, we look at explosions taking place all around us in this world. All around us, every single day, due to sin. The devastating effects can be seen everywhere. Yet we should never lose heart and focus on the power of Christ through the cross that absorbed the full fury of God's wrath that devastated the penalty of sin on our behalf and now gives us the power to love God from the inside out and to love those in the world from the inside out. That's his will for our lives. That's his will. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that you've granted us to look at a passage that is extremely important. We pray that you would allow us to even be captured for the remainder of the day, remainder of the week, and all the days ahead by the nature that was once ours to live in a state where all of those things could be true of us. Murder, habitual lying, deception, sensuality, fornication, adultery. Oh, what a wreck. What an absolute wreck our lives could be. But yet, those of us who were drawn to you in saving faith, you've given us a new nature. You've given us a heart transplant to walk in newness of life and to worship you through the guidance and obedience that you spell out for us in your scriptures. Oh, that we would love your law. Oh, that we would love being superintended by your Holy Spirit and governed by the law of Christ that helps us to live for your glory and for your namesake. 
Help us to see how blessed that we are. We want to give you thanks and praise. And Father, I pray that if there's someone here today that has not trusted completely in Christ alone, perhaps it's Christ plus something. Christ plus their good works. Christ plus their false understanding of their depravity. Whatever it might be, would you help them to see that they need to be born again? Would you lead them to the place of repentance? Cause them to cry out to you for forgiveness and to trust completely in Christ and commit the remainder of their days for living for your name's sake and for the sake of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for your grace to do that very thing. I also pray for all the relationships that we have access to in our schools, in our workplaces, with our neighbors, that the next time that we see a neighbor as we're pulling in the driveway, that we wouldn't be content just with a wave or clearly talking about the weather, but that we would look beyond the physical and get to the spiritual priority of the gospel, that we would make a difference for your namesake, that we would see them as a soul perishing without you, that they one day would get into the car and head to a place, a house of worship, because their hearts are born again to do so. We pray that's your will. We give you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.